0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy at 8.55am. This is Susan
1: Wolfe from the University of North Carolina.
0: You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR A55 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is now on Twitter. You can find it by searching Rad Philosophy on Twitter and clicking Follow to follow us and keep updated with the show. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Steward, Wolfe and Hagengruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. glad you tuned into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host Beth Matthews. Today on the program we're going to be speaking about Helene Mazda and I'll let you introduce yourself.
1: Uh, okay, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Christina Kimiso, and uh, I'm a professor of philosophy at the Open University in the United Kingdom. Uh, maybe I'll say a few words about my work. Is yes, that's if okay you could? Just to- Okay, yes. so my research is mainly, mainly on French philosophy of science in the 20th century. So, for example, I wrote my first monograph on the philosopher Gaston Bachelard. Uh, my second uh, in part of Writing the History of the Mind, uh, focuses more broadly on uh, the philosophical school called historical epistemology. Uh, and my latest monograph is on Hélène Metzger, uh, we talk about her today. Uh, my next monograph I have will be a bit different uh, because it won't be focused on epistemology, uh, but it will be, I think, a rather personal book on Simone de Beauvoir uh, for Cambridge University Press.
0: Right, so what was it that inspired you to study Hélène Metzger? Well, I'm
1: a certain type of historian of philosophy and I believe that um, ideas um, uh, depend on the time and places in which uh, they emerge. So when I was writing my first monograph, at the time I was at the Max Planck for uh, history of science in Berlin. Um, the monograph on Bachelard, I was also studying the uh, institutions and French universities in which Bachelard worked and was trained. So while doing this, uh, I bumped, so to speak, uh, on Elam Metzka, and uh, I was in, immediately intrigued. There was this woman, there were very few women, hardly any, uh, and she was teaching at the Sorbonne and she was doing many important things. But, More to the point, I started uh, reading first essays, uh, which are generally talks she gave on uh, issues like uh, anachronism, uh, scientific progress, uh, scientific revolution. She also uh, discussed um, ways of thinking. And I thought it was uh, extremely interesting. So after that, uh, the American Academy of Arts and Science very kindly granted me a fellowship to study her work. And at the time I had the chance to spend time in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where in the archives there are a lot of letters by her, so I could also read her letters. But at the time I only wrote a long article, but she's been always her ideas in the background. And uh, a few years ago, I thought it's time to, to write a monograph on her. And that's what I did a couple of years ago
0: oh yeah for sure no she's very interesting so could you tell us what her early life was like oh yes of course
1: uh, first of all she was born helen Ellen, helen i should say in french brun so mezka is a, a married name and she was born in a french uh, jewish family uh, a family where precious stone merchants basically were, they were well off um her mother died when she was very young um she was uh, the sister Uh, father remarried and uh, he had a son from this second marriage i mentioned that because uh, half brother adrian Brewer um, incidentally edited a last book uh, incomplete book after her death Uh, but also because um the fact that she had a brother i think um bringing to relief Um, the difference he made at the time, we're talking about early 20th century, uh, very early 20th century, the turn of the century, uh, what difference he made to be a man or a a woman. Uh, It's very interesting that uh, in her letters, she described, analyzes these differences, and uh, she writes that um, a father uh, provided her daughters with an education not to gain an independent profession, but to, um, to marry, and I quote uh, a man of intellectual and moral value, even if of a modest thinker. What is very interesting about that, that she discovered a pattern that sociologists, decades later after her, studied. This was a pattern among French Jews. A wealthy women would marry um, intellectuals without fortune. In these ways, in France at the time, uh, Jews managed to enter academia and the higher spheres of intellectual life. Because until that point, uh, these milliers had been close to them. Uh, so that was a sort of strategy that she understood. And, uh, and she followed that path at the beginning, because she did marry Paul Metzger and he was uh, an academic he was just starting off his career and but he died not even a a year and a half after uh, into the marriage Um, it was an early casualty of first world war
0: oh right so um could you explain about her thesis on the emergence of the science of crystals
1: yeah, sure. this was her first book um, and uh, she wrote it actually independently. She had a degree in crystallography. I guess she had a degree in crystallography with the family business in mind, because they, they of course, they traded in uh, precious stones. Um, but this book is not about modern crystallography. It's about the emergence of the sense of crystal. Um, and by the way, this book gained uh, a doctorate. Uh, so it is a remarkable book, uh, because several of her, of her historiographical and philosophical thesis already appear in this book. So as the title suggests, she aimed to show the way which crystallography emerged as a discipline out of diverse activities, theories, and interest. Um, Already here, she focused on science in the making, as she calls it. Uh, That would be the focus of lifelong work. Uh, What I mean by science in the making, rather than looking at science as a sort of collection of truths or finished products, she looked at science as a day-to-day activity, including, I don't know, habits, conventions, discoveries, Failed attempts, new untested ideas. That's what she was interested in, in the real life, the real activities. Um, and she also, in this book, she was, a, was confronted with the methodological and uh, problems, and also philosophical problems that she reflected on for the rest of her life. Uh, I shall explain what I mean. For this book, she had to read. Uh, vast amount of early modern texts. To the modern reader, these texts are often, well, they look basically absurd. Um, I, I give an example. For example, a claim like that the uh, colors of flowers uh, obviously corresponds to the colors of stars, or that there must be so many types of woods as there are bones in the human body, but routinely made. Of course, to us, they look just absurd. So the question is, how is it possible that these claims not only were made, but seemed perfectly reasonable to the people at the time? Her answer to this question formed the basis for her epistemological views. Namely, that the way which people reason depends on different assumptions, metaphysics, system of classification, technical capabilities, and also on the aims, emotions, and aspirations. This means that in order to understand past theories, we must understand how people reason at the time, which in turn depends on a number of social and cultural factors. Of course, these varieties of ways of thinking, uh, Not only, of course, creates methodological problems like avoiding anachronism and she reflected extensively on anachronism. It also generates epistemological questions. Namely, if people who study nature reason differently in different times, can their theories be compared? Can we claim that there is scientific progress? So here I don't have obviously enough time to explain the details of her view. But I think that she allowed for different ways of thinking without failing, falling in the problem of incommensurability, of course, an issue that subsequent of science have grappled with. Her own theory of, of the mind, and now I'll say two words about her theory of the mind. Of course, there is very really no space, it's very complex. But she thought that the human minds and all at the same, she calls tendencies, in fact, we all possess the fundamental concepts that organize our knowledge. However, in different times and places, we use one concept, the use of one concept can be very different from the use of the, co- the same concept in another time. I- I'll give you an example. So I'll uh, uh maybe it would be clear. Um I mentioned earlier the correspondence between the color of flowers and those of the stars and between the types of woods and bones. So Mezger says, well, these strange views came about because the concept of analogy was fundamental in early modern scholars. For them, all the objects in nature stood in a relation of of analogy. we will never use analogy in the same way. So that's different from us. That's why it's hard to read those texts. No, we will we place analogy at the core of understanding the universe. But we do have the concept of analogy. And we, we use it all the time. So there is not a problem of incommensurability in the sense we cannot compare theories or we cannot understand past theories. We can, even if it's difficult. So I think she had a very good middle way between um, denying that we think differently and uh, the other end that to think that there is no way to speak to each other.
0: Yes, and what were the other areas of philosophy um, that she focused on?
1: Well, in fact, I mean, she regarded herself, I think, as a historian of science, in particular, historian of chemistry, uh, because after the book on crystallography, she wrote books on history of chemistry, many philosophical essays, and also uh, books about the commentators of Newton. However, we must bear in mind that in France, uh, history of science was, and in fact, still is, much closer to philosophy than elsewhere. Institutionally, it was created by philosophers, Philosophers, uh, more to the point, Israel science was used to answer philosophical questions. And in fact, she herself uh, claimed that the goal of the history of science is to understand the mind better. So history of science for her will give us a knowledge of the mind by studying how people um, interpret nature. And also she thought that by means of this very knowledge, uh, history of science will Help us to use our mind, our intelligence more wisely. Uh, so she actually was part of a movement, um, historical epistemology, other uh, philosophers, Abel uh, Leon Branchvig, Gaston Bachelard, who employed historical sort of science in order to uh, answer philosophical questions.
0: Right, so she married in 1914 and was widowed only a, a few months afterwards. How might her life have been different if she was not widowed? Uh, yeah,
1: uh, that's obviously a diff- different, diff- uh, difficult question, but we can um, uh, think about this. Uh, I think we can assume that her life uh, would have been um, partly different, different. If her husband hadn't died, for example, I assume she she would have followed him where his career took him. Because uh, immediately after the wedding, they moved to Lyon, where he had a job at the local university. Uh, After his death, uh, she returned to Paris, I assume for private reasons, but uh, of course Paris was the place to be for her interests, for for intellectual development Incidentally, uh, she was close to her uncle, Lucelle levy Bruce, who was professor of history of philosophy at the Sorbonne, and she also, he also found a Institute of ethnology there. Um, so she wrote that he was always the first to read their work, and he introduced her to philosophers at the Sorbonne. So in a way, it's difficult to say whether a living husband and probably children would have made a difference. I guess the easy guess is they would have made a great deal of difference. On the other hand though, after her marriage and before the death of her husband, she published an article first and wrote the book on crystallography that we just discussed. But I think the greatest difficulty for laying in uh, the time, her times and place, uh, we know that she wanted an academic job and uh, she never got a proper academic job uh although she lectured in the in very prestigious institutions of generally not paid. Um she was very active uh, for example at the centre Synthese, an independent research institution whose members included the most important intellectual of the time I mean she was in the right milliers, but the problem was that um she was a woman uh, to give you an idea, in the 1930s, in, in the whole of France, there were there were only six women holding um, academic jobs, only two in Paris, uh, both in science. And to give you an idea how it was, one of these two women holding a, um, a academic an academic job was Marie Curie, who uh, got the position after winning the first of her two Nobel Prizes. Uh, Even a Nobel Prize was not enough because she got a job only as a replacement of a husband who had died. So even a Nobel Prize didn't give you a job very easily. (laughs) So you understand it wasn't really easy for her. Um, Metzger's letters also tell us the difficulties that she had to be respected in a way. I mean her monographs were very well regarded. Two of which two of her monographs received prestigious prizes. Um, she lectured, she had an important role in running International Learners Association, and still she was routinely asked to catalogue books, to compile body, book indexes and to do all the clerical jobs. And um, you know, that that was the time, unfortunately, and it was not easy because she didn't like it.
0: Mm, no. Now, um, do you think that she's not as well known as she should have been? I think there's no doubt about
1: it, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, honestly, I mean, of course, we can compare the sexism of interwar French academia with current times. This is true. However, um, I think it's still there. And uh, in, in my book, I um, uh, I say and the notice that even um, current critics, when they mention her, uh, they always mention some other philosopher who influenced her, who mentored her, who taught her. So she's always presented as a sort of junior member of, um, of uh, intellectual milieu. And I think it's a sort of reflex that people have because she's a woman. Uh, and if you read, uh, these um, critics, it's in a way it's hard to imagine that uh, she lectured at the Sorbonne Institute for the of science from its very first year, after she helped setting it up. So she formed the first academically trained historians of science in France, that she could, was considered an authority in the history of chemistry, that her work was routinely, routinely cited. Of course, I mean, the most important citations, uh, I think for us is dissertation in Thomas Kuhn's um, this structure of scientific revolution. At the beginning of the structure of the scientific revolution, of course, the seminal books in philosophy of science, Thomas Kuhn mentioned Metzger as one of his inspirations to the book. She she did not even make to the index uh, of the book, although she's mentioned three times at least. And uh, Thomas Kuhn also wrote about uh, her historiography in another essay, which is now in the essential tension, presenting her historiography as the new historiography. And yet these references have been largely ignored. I must say, for people who read Metzger, a lot of, some of Kuhn's ideas don't look very new because one can really see the parallels because he wrote, her, he read her. But uh, But as I said, that doesn't mean that then people follow that link.
0: No, um, what was her legacy?
1: Well, a monograph history of chemistry continued to be read and they continued to be cited. Um, I can see that it can be argued that there is also an indirect legacy through Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions, because in a way, since this book has been so fundamental for philosophy of science, even more for sociology of science, I think some of her ideas through um, Kuhn indirectly uh, form a, a, a legacy for uh, present times, although most people who use these ideas will be unaware of it. I think, though, that mezgaard work has still not had the legacy that it deserves, at least obviously I think so. Uh, from her discussion of anachronism, to her focus of science in the making, to her view that emotions play a role in scientific knowledge and the list could be endless, I think she still has got very much to contribute to present debates. I mean, certainly her work belongs to her time. So when we read it, we have to allow that the fact that it was written a century ago, but of course that's true of any, when we read any philosopher that, you know, we have to adapt their ideas. But I think she's still, uh, she's still waiting a bit for the big legacy that she should have, I think.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already mentioned?
1: Not really. Uh, Only that her work is really worth reading. Uh, It's irrelevant, I was saying. And so I hope people will read it. The shame is that uh, very little of her work is translated into English. So it's an obstacle. Uh, I've translated a few essays and one of her books is translated, but I guess maybe some listeners who are translators might want to uh, translate some of her books would be great. And um, of course, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to to talk about her.
0: Well, that's all right. Do you have any future study plans?
1: Yeah, as I was me- mentioning at the beginning, uh, I, uh, I um, uh, signed a contract very recently with Cambridge University press to write a book on Simone de Beauvoir. And uh, I expect it to be a, a personal take on her. And uh, and as I was mentioning, it's a bit of a departure from my uh, usual focus, but of course, it's still Fran- French philosophy. And yes, and I'm excited about that,
0: obviously. Yes. Oh, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Uh, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. And I've been speaking with
1: Christina Kimisso
0: about Elan Meska. Hope you've enjoyed the program today, I've certainly enjoyed your company.